please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 4, and in your bulletin there is an insert with some space for some notes and a little programming note. There will be a section where I'm going through a bunch of verses, and you're going to be furiously trying to take notes, but if you run behind, just email me and I'll send you what those are. And so, I'll let you listen a little more carefully and not have to write so furiously. As we have been working through James chapter 4, we've seen a battle plan starting to unfold that James has given us against our big enemy. Yes, Satan is one of those enemies, but I think the biggest enemy that James has in mind is right here. It's our prideful selves that seem to always find ourselves in some way in conflict with God in His ways, in His perspective, in the way that He would call us to live. He's laying out this battle plan to fight pride, and He calls us to grace-enabled humility. That's only possible, humility only possible when we understand God's grace to us in Christ. And so, this is being fleshed out in terms of how this plan looks. And in the previous section last week, we looked at how we speak, how we speak about one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, how we think about one another in judging one another in our hearts. And in our pride, we think we're right. We're the lawgiver. We're the judge. But the truth is, God is the lawgiver and judge, and we can't play God by judging others in our hearts. And again, that battle plan that we would submit ourselves to God, that we would resist the devil, that we would draw near to God and He would draw near to us. Again, fleshed out in repentance from our hearts and our hands, crying out to God for the transformation, the change that He can give. Today, James turns how we're to think about the future and how we are to plan into an area that we need to recognize as susceptible to pride. Future plans are very susceptible for us to fall into presumptuous planning, pride-filled planning, but a humble heart. We're going to consider how a submissive, humble heart is the best approach for planning the future. Follow along as I read James 4, 13 to 17. This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired Word. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Let's pray. Father, as we come and sit under Your Word, not as judges over it, we pray that You would give us humble hearts, grace-filled, humble hearts to hear from You, Lord, ears to hear and eyes to see the truths that will change our lives. Lord, we thank You for the revelation of that truth in Your Word, that You haven't left us to wander around in the dark or to probe around in Your general revelation, but You have given us special revelation, Your own Word. Your Son has prayed for us that You would sanctify us by the truth because Your Word is truth. 
And Lord, in this uh, challenging section of James today, when it comes to our thoughts about planning and how our prideful hearts can get in the way, Lord, I pray that You would begin a work in us, that You would start transforming our attitudes and our perspective towards our future so that we can live humble and submissive lives before You. Lord, we need You. We need Your Holy Spirit who dwells us both to see and to do what You've called us to do. I pray that You would help us by that same Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Heard the story of a student who walked into class and saw a number on the whiteboard. It was 25,550. There's no context for that number on the board. It's just written on the board. Other students started coming into the room. They're like, you know what that's about? I, I don't know what that's about. The professor must have put it on the board before we came in. 25,550. The professor came in and he said, you've been noticing that number up there. Yeah, we all have. What is it? What's it about? 70 years times 365 days equals 25,550 days. If you were to live 70 years or if by reason of strength 80, you will get 25,550 days. And a lot of that's already spent by now. How are you using those days? How are you thinking about your future? How are you planning to spend the rest of those days because the clock is ticking? The brevity of life, the shortness of life. We've been having a number of funerals in our congregation. We have more to come. It's ever before us how brief life is, how much, like James says, our life is like a vapor, and it's gone. The way that we think about the future, the way we plan for the future is so important. I remember as a young person, it was easy, right? You went from eighth grade, and all the decisions you had to make landed you in ninth grade, and then from ninth grade, you went to tenth grade, tenth grade to eleventh grade, then it got a little tricky. Instead of just planning what electives you were going to take, whether you were going to do art or shop or whether you were going to do music, you now had to start to think about, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? What kind of career am I going to have? What kind of path should I be on? So I remember, I don't want to screw this up. I don't want to make my life not count. How, how do I do this the right way? So in my school, we had aptitude tests that we took. We had a guidance counselor that you went to see, and we met many times and discussed, you know, what would be a good career path for me? Would that include trade school? Would it include military? Would it include college or going right into a career? All sorts of planning, all sorts of choices to be made. And I thought by the end of my junior year, I'd figured out pretty much what would work for me. I thought that I was pretty good at math and science. I didn't want to be around people too much. So a job in a cubicle where I didn't have to deal with people. And I liked stuff and to be able to go places. And so it would be a job that paid a lot of money to just do stuff by myself. Now, God had all sorts of different plans in mind. But my decision-making process pretty much centered around me, myself, and I. It was basically what I wanted, when I wanted it, and how I wanted it. And I fell into the trap that we so often default to is that we make decisions for the future without even thinking about God. 
I was a practical atheist. I was a Christian kid. I went to church. I did Christian things. I did church things. I did God things on those God-appointed times. But when it came to my future and my career and what I would do, is that really something that God was interested in or had a, had a voice in? I went to summer camp, church camp, like I did every year, and the cabin that I was in was all full of seniors, and our camp counselor took time for each one of us to just one-on-one ask us, hey, um, what do you got planned for after high school, after your senior year? I told him all that I had planned, and he's kind of like, seemed like pausing, waiting for more, and he said, Nathan, have you thought about what God might want you to do? Now, I don't think he was just pointing at, Nathan, you should go be a pastor, although that started me thinking about that possibility, but just even the mindset to think that God had any say in what I was going to do with my life was a revelation to me, and I spent time wrestling with and, and now actually praying about, God, what do you want for my future? Maybe it's those pivotal moments, uh, like you're in high school or in college, you're looking for where you're going to have a career, where you go to school, you're looking for a spouse, you're looking for the next promotion, whether you should take it or not. Understanding what is God's will in terms of the future is a critical area for us to get straight. Don't end up like a practical atheist, leaving God out of the equation, because as we'll see from this passage, that proper planning requires humble submission to God's will. Let's start with verse 13, and here we see the kind of the setup for the problem, and we're going to see that presuming you can predict or control the future is actually evil arrogance. Uh, Those aren't just my words, those are James's words, and let's see why it's pretty severe. Verse 13, "'Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town, spend a year there, and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes.'" When you say that, verse 16 says, "'As it is, you boast in your arrogance.'" and all such boasting is evil. When you speak like that, it's evil. Well, why, why is it evil to say, tomorrow I'll go into this town, spend a year there, trade, and make profit? That just sounds pretty basic. Well, understanding how did people make profit, how did people travel and trade when James wrote this, you know, in the first century, the Roman Empire expanding caused a lot of potential for people to move from you know, sustenance farming and just having their own stuff to being able to trade their goods and to move abroad and to do commerce and business and to get rich. And so, the mindset that James is is pointing to is that there's travel and trade opportunities, and for you to presume you're going to do this and get rich is evil boasting. It's, It's arrogance. You know, Jesus told the story of a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. The Good Samaritan came by. But the dangers and the risks of traveling on the roads, even from Jerusalem to Jericho, were real. And for you to not take those into account and not to understand 
you know, something may happen, is presumptuous. Or maybe James had in mind the parable of his brother Jesus from Luke chapter 12 when he said, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build larger ones. There I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? This fool made a lot of plans presuming that he would get rich and he would have more. There were a lot of factors, a lot of risks that he made assumptions about that God says, for you, it's not true. A plan. One author said, a plan is a flexible, detailed design for action based on careful consideration of all the facts. That's not sinful. That's not what James is condemning. A plan is a flexible, detailed design for action based on careful consideration of all the facts. Presumption presumption is, on the other hand, a superficial design for action built on partial knowledge, inadequate objectives, and questionable motives. That's the presumption that James is pointing out about this person who's saying, we're going to go, we're going to make profit, What is clear here is that James is denouncing this kind of presumption, but he's not ruling out planning. That planning, when we take into account what God says about it, is necessary and good and important. This author makes the distinction. Planning recognizes the uncertainties of life. Presumption ignores them. Planning recognizes the brevity of life, but presumption ignores it. Planning considers the will of God, presumption ignores it. Planning is rational and humble, but presumption is irrational and it's boastful. You know, sometimes we like to minimize or excuse our presumption and call it like confidence. I I just have a lot of confidence when it comes to my plans. And that ought to be just kind of a, a check in your spirit to say, okay, how have I come to decide upon those plans? How did I decide that this plan, my plan, is a good plan and a right plan? Is it really just kind of a prediction made up of uh, guesses based on not sufficient knowledge? And does it really take into account the right motivation? What am I doing this for? What am I planning? What do I want to get out of this? If it's all just about what I get and what I gain, Is that really righteous planning? It reveals that I want to be king. I want it to happen my way. I want to be able to think it and plan it, and then so it will be. I want to pray my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It just shows our prideful arrogance when we plan without God. It's opposed to God, really. It contradicts God. It usurps God because God is the author of our life. He's the plan giver. When we in our own self-reliance try to plan without Him, it's prideful. So how are we to understand how God's will factors into this planning? 
so we don't end up being presumptuous. Verse 15, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So, this is a statement that is contrary to the first statement, today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town, we'll spend a year there, trade and make a profit. That's the presumption. What James is saying is, you should say something different. It's not different about whether you will go trade, how long you might spend, what might be the outcome, but it's taking into account God's will. You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that if the Lord wills. Um, This is reminiscent of what our catechism describes what prayer is. Prayer is offering up of our desires unto God for things that are agreeable with His will. I don't know what His will is. We're going to talk about His secret will, about His revealed will, but if I am going to make plans, it certainly has to be in prayer considering what is God's will, not just solely what is my desire or my will. Desires are involved, but they come under God's will. Well, maybe this verse doesn't help us as much because we don't really understand God's will. We don't understand the scope and the magnitude of what God's will extends to. God decrees. God plans. God has a plan in His mind And the way that then He executes that plan is what we call providence. It's, as our catechism says, God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures, all their actions. The plan is His decree. Providence is how He works out that plan. And so, where do we get that from? That's not just in my mind. It's from Deuteronomy 29, 29 of one place. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things He's revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Secret things. God has plans in His mind that He in His wisdom has chosen not to tell you about. He hasn't told you the exact person you should marry. He hasn't told you the exact job you should work in. He doesn't give you those secret details of your life. Those belong to Him. But He has revealed for us and for our children in His Word, in His law, His directions. So that's, it. that's His directive will. What He has revealed for us, we call His directive will. What He has as a secret plan is His decretive will, His, his decree, His plan. And He doesn't, only on rare occasions, does He tell His people uh, throughout Scripture those secret plans. Otherwise, it's the written plan that we have to go by. But that plan is expansive, extensive. And I think sometimes we don't go to God and say, if you will, because we don't really understand that He has a plan for everything in our lives, how expansive God's will is. We've kind of miniaturized it and truncated how far His will will extend. Let me just walk you through some scriptures that tell us what is God sovereign over? What has He decreed and will come to pass? God's sovereign over our salvation. Ephesians 1, 
even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. He is sovereign over salvation. He's sovereign over sanctification. Romans 8, 28 and 29, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That process of sanctification is under God's sovereign control. God is sovereign over your hair. Did you know this, right? Matthew 10, 29 to 31, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you who are, you who are of more value than many sparrows. He's sovereign over those details. He's sovereign over all things. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says, For by Him all things were created in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Without Him, there'll be no, nothing held together. He's sovereign over all things. Here's a tough one. He's also sovereign over calamity when bad things happen. Isaiah 45, 7, I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Hard but true. He is sovereign over calamity. He's sovereign over what, what seem to be chance and random events. In Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The lot, just a die, a, a roll of the dice seems to be random, but God is the one that answers what is the decision. Did I say He's sovereign over all things? He said it in Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Nothing. Job is absolutely clear that nothing that God has planned to do can be thwarted. And as it relates to the problem of James 4.13, when we say we're going to do this, we're going to profit, we're going to make money, this is what 1 Chronicles 29, those of you who have been in Crown Financial Ministries memorize this verse. 1 Chronicles 29.11, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in heavens and earth is Yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from You, and You rule over all. In Your hand are power and might, and it's in Your hand to make great and to give strength to all. If God wants to make someone great, if God wants to give strength, if God wants to give riches, it's in His hand to do it. It's also within His will to be able to withhold it. But that's the secret part of God's will that we don't know. It's not written for us in the Word and revealed. So how do we make plans? Proverbs 16 says, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs his spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. 
it's prayer. It's saying, these are my desires, Lord. Are they agreeable with your will? And then being content for however it turns out, you're not angry about it. You're not frustrated about it. You're not saying, poor me. Uh, This is living in light of God's will. God's will is not this precise dot that if you somehow miss it, then you're out of God's will. I think that's been a confusion among Christians for a while, that if I don't pick the exact person that I was supposed to marry, then I could be outside of God's will, and maybe I should have never married them in the first place, and therefore I'm out. And that just runs down this, this rabbit trail of confusion. No, God's will is framed by what He has revealed, and that's in His Word. And as His Word kind of creates this frame, everything inside those commands are agreeable for God's will. They can be options for you. Within that realm of what He commands and what He forbids, you're free to choose. And when you choose in that, He takes into account your desires, your gifting, your passions. And so, those things work themselves out as we submit to the Lord. You know, there is this phrase in Latin, Deo Volente, and it was used when letter writing was a thing and people would say, I am planning to travel by coach three years, three days from now, and I anticipate arriving at your uh, location in a month, and Deo Volente, if the Lord wills. Like, recognizing a lot of things could happen in between, but acknowledging if the Lord wills. I think I need to say that every time I work on my car. When my wife says, okay, when will you be done? I said, well, I saw it on YouTube and it took an hour. I think I could get it done in an hour, Lord willing. And sometimes He isn't willing. Quite often, Lord, is not willing that it only takes an hour. Often it's one or two or three or four hours. What I'm acknowledging, what we need to acknowledge, that's a silly illustration, but whatever those plans are, that we're not holding so tightly to those plans that God can't change them, that God can't rearrange them, that He can't swap something else in that plan because you got too tight a grip on what you want, when you want it, how you're going to get it. Planning's not the problem. It's gripping onto that plan with such ferocity that you won't let God change your plans and adjust them for things that will be better for you, good for you. We need to order that box in ways that we're willing to let go of things. Finally, resting in God's sovereignty requires obedience. Look at verse 17. So, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's a sin. Uh, These are sins of omission. When you know what the right thing is to do, but you don't do it, that's sin, but it's a sin of omission as opposed to God says, don't do this, and you do it, then that's a sin of commission. Sins of omission are sometimes a little fuzzy in our minds because we, 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 we don't have it pinned down so clearly. But James has just pinned it down. Don't plan in this way. Plan with the mindset of if the Lord wills. So now that you know this, do it. Uh, don't ignore it. Uh, this is how Douglas Moo said it in his commentary. Uh, James has urged us to take the Lord into consideration in all our planning. 
We therefore have no excuse in this matter. We know what we are to do. To fail now to do it, James wants to make clear it's sin. We can't silo God out of our planning life, our career, our marriage, our future, what, what we're gonna, where we're going to live, how we're going to go about our lives. God has to be a part of every single part of our lives because God's will encompasses everything about us and everything that we touch. So it's not enough to acknowledge, to admit, I'm not the king, but God is, or that I admit I don't know the future. It's not, it's not enough to just intellectually grasp this or to magically speak words if the Lord wills. It has to be the conviction of our hearts, humbled to the point to say, I'm not in charge, I'm not the boss. God, if it's Your will, then I will do this. So, we simply don't have the option to say, I understand how this works, but I'm going to do it anyways. I'm going to do what I want. Don't forget what James said in chapter 1. He said, be doers of the Word and not hearers only that deceive yourselves. If a hearer of the Word is not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently in his face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he'll be blessed in the doing. When you plan according to God's will, you will be blessed in the execution of that plan. Not, not just in, I kind of want to, I think I probably should, but when you actually do, consider God in all your plans, He will bless those plans. Proper planning requires humble submission to God's will. This week I was reading in a devotional by Paul Tripp, New Morning Mercies. He had a, a pointed devotional on this subject of God's will and our lives, and I want to just close by reading that to you. Tripp says, remind yourself again today that you have a story, but it's not an autobiography. There is an author of your story, but the author's not you. You've been welcomed into an epic drama, but you'll never be the hero. You've been given a kingdom, but you'll never be its monarch. The price of your admission into this story was the suffering and death of Jesus Christ, but He conquered death so that by grace He could establish His story in your life. Today He reigns on your behalf, and He will continue to do so until the last enemy of your soul and of His kingdom has been defeated. And then He'll summon you into the final chapter, a chapter that never ends, where peace and righteousness will reign forever and ever. This is the story of your faith in your life. The story of His redemptive eternal plan is now your biography. Why would you ever want an autobiography when you can have the story God Himself has written? Let's pray. Oh, God, thank You for being the author and finisher of our faith, the perfecter, the one who has gone before us. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are the shepherd of our hearts, the one who guides us and down paths and the places where You would have us to feed. We ask, Lord, that You'd give us courage and strength to plan wisely. 
over the course of the next days, weeks, months, and years. Lord, we really want to be faithful stewards of all the time, the resources, the gifts, the energy that You do give us. Lord, we truly are compelled to plan this way because we're not our own. Our lives are not our own. Lord, we've been bought with a price, the price of Your beloved Son's life. Lord, I pray that we would live in light of Your grace, be humbled from our prideful, presumptuous planning, and Lord, would we plan in ways that are submissive to Your will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.